Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash my money health check. Hello and welcome. I'm Rob Lilly and this is the Witch Shorts podcast. In our latest episode from us here at Witch, we'll be exploring the brilliant world of bees and what you can do to help them thrive in your own garden. A reminder that in this series, we bring you the very best articles from across witch.co.uk and our magazines and all are available for you to listen to, of course, here, wherever you might be and whatever you might be up to. If you like what you hear, then do remember to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. And we'd also love it if you'd leave us a review and a rating too, wherever you're listening, and that'll help other people find us. If you want more from Witch, then why not sign up to one of our free newsletters, which collate all the very best informative and interesting content from us in one handy email. Details of how to do that at the end of today's episode. But to read us this article, originally written by Dr. Ken Thompson, I'll hand you over to Grace Farrell. In spring, bird nesting is well underway. But what about nests for solitary bees? Most of Britain's bee species are solitary. That is, unlike honeybees and bumblebees, they don't make large nests with distinct queen and worker bees. Instead, individual female bees lay eggs in cells provisioned with nectar and pollen in some kind of hole. Many species nest in holes in the ground. More about them later. But those that normally nest in hollow plant stems or holes in wood are easily persuaded to use artificial nests. Every garden centre now sells a range of solitary bee nests, but making your own is easy, cheap and often free. Plus, they usually work better than the commercial versions. All you need to do is drill some blind holes, ideally no less than about 10 centimetres deep, in any old lump of untreated wood. Solitary bees come in a range of sizes, and most will use holes in the 4 to 8 millimetre diameter range. However, some are bigger, and few are very small, so make some 2 millimetre and 10 millimetre holes too. Hardwood is ideal because bees might snag their wings on any rough edges or splinters, and it's easier to make really smooth, neat holes in hardwood. But softwood is fine too. If you don't have any lying around, Builders' merchants will sell or even give away offcuts. There are three golden rules. Your nest should be firmly fixed, not freely swinging around. Height above the ground isn't critical, but somewhere between waist and head height is convenient for you and the bees. Solitary bees rely on the sun's warmth to get going in the morning, so your nest should be in the full sun and ideally face between south and east. Your nest must be protected from rain. Eggs are laid in the summer, but the young bees won't emerge until the following spring. Although they don't mind being cold, 
winter wet is very likely to prove fatal. If your nest is exposed to winter rain, it will probably fail. My nests are under the overhanging roof of a log store, but an unheated porch or carport would be great too. If you have nowhere weatherproof to site your nest, you can always move it into an unheated shed or garage for the winter. Just don't forget to put it out again in the spring. It's easy to see which holes have been used, because when the female bee has finished laying, she'll seal the end of the hole with mud or chewed up plant material. Leafcutter bees, which make semicircular holes in the edges of your rose leaves, cap the ends with pieces of leaf. In spring, the holes made in the caps by emerging bees are obvious. The earliest solitary bee species might start laying in late April, but all activity will have ceased by September at the latest. After that, there's nothing to do except wait for the young bees to emerge in the spring. Or is there? It's at this point that solitary bee nests start to get complicated. One of the selling points of many commercial nests is that you can dismantle and clean them. It's often recommended that the cocoons are removed, checked for parasites and even disinfected, and then kept somewhere safe and cold, maybe the fridge, before being replaced in the cleaned nest in the spring. I have three comments about all this. One is that solitary bees have survived for millions of years without any of this attention. The second is that it's this kind of malarkey that puts many gardeners off the whole idea of wildlife gardening. And third, there's been no research into whether any of this makes the slightest difference to the health or survival of solitary bees. My advice is not to bother. If you want to clean out any unoccupied holes during the winter with a pipe cleaner or similar, it certainly won't do any harm, but there's no evidence that it will do any good either. Much the same applies to the common advice that the whole nesting block should be replaced every couple of years. As long as it's kept dry, there's no reason why a wooden solitary bee nest shouldn't last for many years. Most solitary bees nest in the ground and are much harder to please than the species that will use bee nests. They like sunny, bare, ideally sandy ground, so many are happiest in heathland. Even if you try really hard to provide the right kind of habitat, there's no guarantee that they'll show up in your garden. On the other hand, a few mining bees do often turn up in gardens. One of the most common is the furry, orange-red, tawny mining bee, which often leaves its excavated volcanoes of soil on the scruffier parts of lawns. It's not doing any harm, so just leave it alone. But what about bumblebees? Well, we can quickly dispose of the idea of repeating the success of making nests for solitary bees. Lots of research in the UK and elsewhere demonstrates beyond reasonable doubt that providing artificial nests for bumblebees is a waste of time if you make your own, or money if you buy one. Bumblebees hardly ever use them. Actually, that isn't quite true, but more of that later. Other research does show that bumblebee nests are quite common in gardens, perhaps present in up to one in every two gardens. We shouldn't be too surprised by that. After all, all those bumblebees in your garden have to come from somewhere. But nearly all those nests escape being noticed. So now, with the bumblebee season in full swing, let's see if we can find them. When it comes to nesting, not all bumblebees are looking for the same thing. 
Most common native bumblebees nest in the ground, often in a hole created by rodents or a similar man-made habitat such as under sheds or in compost heaps. But bumblebees are quite adaptable. A rolled-up carpet, a disused armchair or under an old lawnmower or upturned sink are just a few of the places nests have been found. In spring, you'll often see bumblebee queens searching for nesting sites, investigating any likely-looking dry, dark crevice. In my old garden in Sheffield, the space behind dry stone retaining walls was a favourite, and once in the cavity beneath a paving slab. In my present garden, red-tailed bumblebees nested in the base of a hedge a couple of years ago. Wherever they are, it's hopeless to attempt to spot the nest entrance itself. What you need to see is the bee traffic, the workers entering and leaving the nest to collect pollen and nectar. Because bumblebee nests contain at most a few hundred bees, unlike honeybee hives, which are much bigger, this traffic is quite sparse and easily missed. Have a think about the likely nesting sites in your garden. Then choose a warm, sunny day, get a cup of tea, make yourself comfortable and watch your possible nest sites for 10 minutes or so. If there's a nest, you should see a few bees come and go during this time. Not all our common bumblebees nest underground. One of the most common bumblebees in gardens is the common carder bee, a smallish, rather tawny, slightly scruffy bee. It usually nests in long, tussocky grass, eventually creating a small mound of moss and grass stems. The first time I saw a nest in my meadow, actually a small patch of long grass, in Sheffield, I had no idea what it was. It was only when I gave it a gentle poke and heard an angry buzzing that the penny dropped. If you provide some long grass, there's a fair chance that carder bees might nest in your garden. Around the middle of the noughties, gardeners suddenly began asking me what, if anything, they should do about bumblebees nesting in their bird boxes. Our native bumblebees only rarely nest in bird boxes, but this was a new species, the tree bumblebee, recently arrived from Europe. The first tree bumblebee was captured on the northern edge of the New Forest in 2001, and since then it spread rapidly, with the first records from Wales in 2009 and from Scotland in 2013. I saw it for the first time in my Sheffield garden in 2010, and by 2015 it was my commonest bumblebee. All British bumblebees nest in or on the ground, but the tree bumblebee, as its name suggests, nests in holes in trees, and it loves nest boxes intended for birds. However, before you dismiss the tree bumblebee as yet another invasive alien, the truth is that as far as we know, they got here on their own. No difficulty about that. Bumblebees are strong flyers, and the English Channel was no problem to them, certainly not with a following wind. So that makes the tree bumblebee a native species because it spread naturally from an area where it was already native, unlike alien species such as the harlequin ladybird and the New Zealand flatworm that were both introduced into Britain by man. It was always a mystery why the tree bumblebees didn't occur in Britain and now they're here, the only surprising thing is that it took them so long to arrive. What should you do if you have bumblebees nesting in your garden? Nothing. They're not aggressive and will ignore you as long as you ignore them. Bumblebee nests are short-lived annual affairs anyway, so your nest won't be around for very much longer. If the nest is somewhere that is really inconvenient, 
Wait until all activity has ceased in the autumn and then block up the entrance to make sure the bees don't nest there next year. In the meantime, make sure pets and young children don't disturb the nest accidentally, but look on it as an opportunity to teach children some fascinating natural history. Some time ago, I read a paper that looked at public attitudes to pollinators and pollinator conservation. To gauge how much they knew about pollinators, people were invited to agree or disagree with a series of statements. Overall, the survey revealed a high level of knowledge. For example, 100% of respondents agreed with the assertion that some pollinator species are in decline. But what caught my eye was that 72% also agreed that honeybees are at risk of extinction, which is certainly not true. Most honeybees are managed by humans in mind-boggling numbers and are no more in danger of extinction than sheep. This result reveals that some of us struggle to distinguish between the thousands of species of wild bees, some of which are in serious trouble, and honeybees which are not. This got me thinking about the relationship between honeybees and wild bees. For a start, is there one? Or do honeybees and wild bees simply coexist, both beavering away, pollinating our flowers and crops, but basically just ignoring each other? It turns out this is a question that biologists have been looking at on and off for a long time. And the consensus is that they compete with each other, though what form this takes is uncertain. One possibility is that honeybees might actively interfere with flower visitation by wild bees, especially solitary bees, many of which are much smaller. Or they might simply use up most of the nectar, leaving less for wild bees. A third possibility is that honeybees transmit pathogens or parasites to wild bees. Whatever's going on, the outcome is clear. In a recent study in Belgium, published in Nature Scientific Reports, bumblebee nests did much better, as usual, in urban as opposed to rural habitats. But within the urban habitat, colonies in areas with low density of honeybee hives perform better than those with a high density of hives. This raises the question, what is the effect of all this on the quantity and quality of pollination services provided to crops? If honeybees partially displace wild bees, do they simply replace them as pollinators? Again, there's quite a bit of research looking at this, and the answer is fairly clear. No, they don't, at least not entirely. Although pollination depends on the total number of bees present, the diversity of bees also matters, as lots of different bees are better than lots of the same bee. In oilseed rape, for example, an important insect-pollinated crop, the more diverse the pollinators, the better the crop. Honeybees are excellent pollinators, but accumulating research shows they're no substitute for a healthy community of wild bees. For example, a recent US study, also published in Nature Scientific Reports, looked at the effect of introducing honeybee hives to farms on the yield of strawberries and winter squash, two highly pollinator-dependent crops. Adding hives reduced not only the abundance and diversity of wild bees, but also the yield of both crops. Rather surprisingly, adding wildflower strips designed to provide more resources for bees didn't prevent this negative effect of honeybees. 
From a farming perspective, this research suggests that for farmers with crops that need pollinating, paying more attention to wild bees might make more sense than the common practice of renting honeybee hives. More generally, I think that while you really can't have too many bees, you probably can have too many honeybees. Thank you to Grace and to Dr Ken Thompson too, whose original work was published in Witch Gardening magazine. Remember you can find more articles that you'll find useful every day on everything from money and tech to home and garden, just like what you heard today, by signing up for one of our free email newsletters. Now, I promised we'd tell you how. Well, all you need to do is go to witch.co.uk forward slash newsletters. That address again is witch.co.uk forward slash newsletters. We'll be back next week for another episode of Witch Shorts, and thanks for listening. Witch Shorts was produced by me, Rob Lilly, while the exec producer was Angus Farker. <laughs>